Serendipity is all about what could be in a moment, what could be in a person, what could be in an organization, and then starting to see that, but also like helping others to start seeing it so that they can then, you know, in Goethe's word, become who they're capable of becoming. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name's Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In today's conversation, I connected with Christian Bush, who's author of a best-selling book called The Serendipity Mindset. He's also director of the Global Economy Programme at New York University, and previously he co-directed the London School of Economics Innovation Lab. He has numerous other affiliations and accolades, including with the World Economic Forum and the Royal Society of Arts. I was first introduced to Christian last year by longtime collaborator Kim Van Nierkirk, so many thanks for that. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the art and science of engineering good luck. And so I started out by asking him, what is the serendipity mindset and why is it important? Enjoy. Well, I mean, it's really about this idea that usually when we think about luck, when we think about, you know, these unexpected good occurrences in our life, we think about it as something that's rather passive. So it's something, you know, being born to a good family or having loving parents, like it's the kind of things we, we can't really choose or do something or do that much about it. But then serendipity is about this kind of smart luck. It's about essentially seeing something in the moment and then doing something with it, connecting the dots. And so what I found super fascinating about it is once we see it as a process of spotting and connecting dots, we can create more of those dots, but also we can learn how to connect those dots more and differently. And so that's the magic then of where we can create more of this serendipity. I like that. Smart luck. That's a great, uh, great description. How, how can you intend to be more lucky? That that sounds somehow like a contradiction. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of small behavioral changes that help us to somehow build that muscle for it. Because um, mm-hmm. there's this importance, of course, of, you know, how do we look at the world, the importance of framing. So to give an example mm-hmm. there, one of my favorite experiments is uh, one person who self-identifies as very lucky. So someone who says, good things always happen to me and, and those kind of things. And then someone who self-identifies as very unlucky. So someone who says, bad things tend to happen to me. And, you know, I'm always an accident. And we probably um, all know people in both, um, in both, on both yeah. sides of the fence. And so, um, you know, this research just helps them walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, order a coffee, sit down, and then we'll have our interview. What he doesn't tell them is that there's hidden cameras across the street. And there's a five pound note in front of the coffee shop. And inside the coffee shop, the one kind of chair that's empty next to the counter is next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big ideas happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a nice conversation, they exchange business cards, potential opportunity coming out of it, we don't know that part. The unlucky person walks down the street, uh, steps over the five pound note, doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, the other person's left, ignores the businessman, that's that. At the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, it was amazing. I found money in the street. I made new friends. 
And, you know, potentially an opportunity we don't know that part. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And we, we, we both, you know, we know these kind of people who, who have that a bit more than others, even though they face exactly the same situation. And we see a couple of elements here, right? One is kind of this idea of once we open our eyes to the unexpected, we see things such as, in this case, the money industry or in a window, we might see a new podcast idea, these kind of things, right? In, in that case, of course, also, there's a bit of extroversion in there, but Long story short, there's all these different aspects where then essentially we can use small exercises in our own lives to train ourselves to look out for the unexpected, but also then to create more of the unexpected. And that's actually my favorite. I'll give you an example. There's Oli Barrett in London, who's a wonderful entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, if you would ask him something, you know, this dreaded question, what do you do? Uh, he wouldn't just say, I'm a tech entrepreneur or something. He would say, I'm a tech entrepreneur, recently read into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I recently started hosting piano matinees. We should chat. My God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching the philosopher of science. You should come by as a guest. The point is that we can use every interaction, every conversation to see dots that other people could connect. And so that's really kind of the magic where we can do these small things that essentially then lead to those positive coincidences a bit more often. Yeah, no, I like that. And I, I know Ollie and he's great at that. I'm just kind of curious, what would the world be like if everyone was like Ollie, everyone was kind of firing out, you know, these hooks all the time, you know, maybe random, slightly random hooks. Uh, would that be too much or would that just create, you know, so much creativity and opportunity? I feel that the beautiful thing is, I, I agree with you, right? Like there are some people who are more, more kind of um, in the verge of Ollie's in terms of like connecting dots for people and for, for themselves, like in a, in a, in a rather kind of out there way um, and then uh, the beauty though of serendipity is that a lot of times it comes out of calm sources out of silent sources right so and um, that example i mentioned that if you change the the street you go to work and you just take another street and you look a bit more consciously at the windows you go into the old bookstore and then you get your next like podcast idea when you read an old book where you say oh my god like um why haven't people spoken about this for 500 years like shouldn't that be on the agenda and so the point is that the connecting the dots piece doesn't have to be about being out there. It doesn't have to be about the kind of extroversion um, piece, but it can be about essentially just recognizing something in something and the dots around it. And that's actually why I'm a huge fan of, of the Serendipity Journal, uh, essentially saying, hey, how do we literally take a couple of pages in a booklet or something and say, what are the themes I'm really interested in? And then I try to kind of set those hooks in conversations, but also when I read things or when I look at things, I try to see them in relation to that because I have something to connect the dots to. But also more importantly, I think that that's really something that I'm very curious about is what are the underlying patterns? What are the underlying themes that enable us to have more serendipity or that hold us back to it? And so, you know, take the quintessential situation of serendipity, you know, where you are in a coffee shop and you know, if you have erratic hand movements like I do, you spill coffee all the time. And, you know, imagine you spill that over someone next to you and you sense there might be some kind of connection, right? You sense there might be something there, but you don't know what it is. And now you have two options, right? Option number one is to just say, I'm so sorry, here's a napkin. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken with this person, right? And then option number two, I'm so sorry, you start a conversation and that person becomes your love partner, your business partner, your co-founder or else. The point here is that when we think about these kind of counterfactuals and when we reflect on those situations where maybe we acted on the unexpected and think about what is the pattern there when I act on it, how can I do more of this or differently? But also more importantly, when I didn't act on it, what was it that held me back? Was it a feeling of not being worthy enough? 
was it imposter kind of syndrome taking over and really mm -hmm. working on these deeper things because a lot of times we might see an opportunity in something or we might not act on it. yeah no absolutely i have several questions uh, just going back for a second to the two people that went to the coffee shop and one saw the five pound note and one didn't and one met the entrepreneur and the other didn't and um, i'm just curious what the mindset well, what's the mindset is behind that? Is it just someone's paying attention and someone isn't paying attention or is maybe distracted? Is it kind of positive thinking? If you think I'm going to be lucky, isn't there a saying, whether you think you're right or wrong, either way, you're probably right. So there's a kind of degree of self-reinforcement to some degree. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because it definitely has uh, that element around framing. Like, how do we frame the world? Like, do we look at the world as something that is, you know, potentially hostile or potentially something where there isn't something good in there? Or do we look at it as something where in every situation you're coming out of it? And mm -hmm. I've been a big fan, actually, of Viktor Frankl, um, who wrote this amazing book, Man's Search for Meaning, which... I reread yeah. re it last year when I had COVID, like, you know, um, a severe form because it is this kind of idea of how do you find meaning even in the toughest of circumstances? I mean, he mm. was in the toughest of circumstances, you can imagine. He was in a concentration camp and still every day he tried to find meaning. And the way he did that was to say, you know what, I can still talk with fellow prisoners and make them feel better about themselves. And by doing this, it gives me some kind of meaning. And so he reframed the situation in a way that somehow created some kind of feeling of meaning. And so uh, a lot of my work actually has been in extremely resource-constrained environment, so especially mm -hmm. in Southern Africa. And what I found fascinating there is there's an organization called Reconstructed Living Labs, and they do that exceptionally well, that kind of idea of framing and how to train that, where when they go into a new community, so they come out of a, a tough community in Bridgetown where, you know, high crime rates, um, extremely impoverished, like the, the toughest environment you can imagine to grow up in. And mm. they say, okay, here's a low cost education methodology, 10 steps to use social media to build a business, just something to, you know, make the best out of what's at hand. And then they go into other local communities and they say, okay, instead of asking you what you need, which puts you into the role of the victim of the beneficiary, we ask you what's already here and how can we make the best out of it? So how can we, if there's an old garage, fantastic. That could be a training center. If there's a former drug dealer, fantastic. That person will have amazing social capital. They will be very creative. If we can turn them into a teacher, it will become cool to be a teacher. And so the point mm -hmm. is that in a way, by looking at the world as not as resource constrained and what don't we have, but at the world mm -hmm. as what could be here, that's exactly where we open our eyes. And so to, to your question of the example, yes, it is that we keep our eyes more open, that we that we expect that something might happen that could be good, but also really that we essentially try to make the best out of what, what a situation could bring us. And so there's a lot of kind of approaches we can use there. And the one that, that I love that they do is um, they have a budgeting approach, for example, mm -hmm. where if you would say, for my event, I need 10 chairs, right? And our usual approach would be, I need a budget for 10 chairs. Um, they say, well, well, not so fast. Do you really need the chairs or could you sit on the floor, X, Y, Z? And if you really need the chairs, could the restaurant next door have them because they're closed at that time? Or could there be other ways to make the best out of what's here? And so you're training yourself by the way you, you propose budgets and other things to have it as a day-to-day. -day. And so that's really, I think, one of the core messages of, of the serendipity mindset to say, it's not about big style kind of changing your whole life. It's about integrating it into your day-to-day -day in a way that makes you rethink a little bit how you look at the world. So I'm thinking about self-censoring. So, you know, a lot of people won't share stuff if it's kind of not fully formed, but that gets in the way of maybe making unexpected connections as well. So, but you don't really just want to empty the contents of your brain either, because that's not 
necessarily always appealing or or relevant in all circumstances. So how do you strike the balance between only sharing fully formed ideas versus, you know, randomly pushing out a ton of crazy ideas and seeing what kind of sticks? Yeah, no, that's a great question because I feel especially also in organizational context, a lot of times we might self-censor in a way where you're in a meeting, you have that kind of idea popping up and you don't raise it and then you go outside and you're like, ah, why didn't I contribute this? And and I feel like there it's a lot about how do we set up that psychological safety that allows to do that. But I think what's really interesting from a, a perspective of you know leading teams or leading organizations is how do we develop that psychological safety for everyone who's in the room? I'm a big fan, for example, of the um, the project funeral, where the idea is that you know usually in organizations when an idea doesn't work out, we try to hide it, right? Because we're saying, oh my god, like you know this was you know this was a failure. This didn't really yeah. work, and so on. Um, so the problem is we don't really learn from each other because obviously a lot of the real learning comes from things that don't work out and then kind of learning from what could be done differently. And, and so the Project Funeral is all about saying, we would never want to celebrate failure, right? Because that is something, nobody wants that. Everyone wants to avoid what could be avoided in terms of failure, but we will celebrate the learning from what our experimentation or the learning from what didn't work um, gave us as a kind of key insight. And so in this example, um, there's this company that does uh, window glass. Um, uh, they did this kind of new beautiful window glass that wouldn't reflect the light. And, uh, you know, the idea was that, hey, great, like it doesn't reflect the light. So it, it could be a great kind of product. They underestimated the market. And so they said, okay, we're laying this to rest now in this funeral because we learned that next time we have to understand the market better. Now, someone in the audience goes like, hey, hey, have you considered what this would mean for solar? If you would take that into a solar context, um, how much energy that, and so that's how, quote unquote, coincidentally, part of the solar division emerged. And the way they allowed that kind of idea to come about is to say they allowed people to connect the dots for others by providing an environment that allowed for that kind of psychological safety, that allowed for that kind of trust and so on. And so I feel there's a lot of kind of things we can do around organizational culture, right? In meetings, do we ask questions like, what surprised you last week? Or was there something that questioned our assumptions? And in a way, de-risking it to, uh, to, to think that if you come up with an idea that isn't what was in the plan, that that isn't something that questions the authority of someone who came up with it, but actually that is part of the process. And, and that's how we, we create those kind of more health. I wonder if there's something about kind of working out loud a little bit. You talked earlier about kind of journaling. Um, I'm a particular fan of silent brainstorming. So you ask everybody the same question and then everybody has to individually record their answers and then take it in turns to respond. And often there's a lot of kind of nonsense in there, but then there'll always be the more obvious answers and but there'll be some more unexpected answers and sometimes those are the ones that really unlock if i can just change track slightly because i know you're are you originally german but lived in london and now in new york so you you have experience of at least three countries if not many more i'm sure as well and i'm interested in those three countries in particular because uh my, my parents are german and american and i grew up in the uk so i also know those three cultures i, I think just speaking from personal experience that there's something about growing up in a mixed kind of cultural household that makes you more attuned perhaps to some of those cultural differences or if you know if you're in a new country and you're in the supermarket it can be a confusing experience because you're not you know you don't know the brands and you don't know how things are organized and that's kind of exciting but also a little bit kind of confusing just wondering 
if you've thought about the kind of the cross-cultural connections uh, and how that links to serendipity. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, growing up in Germany, I got trained in strategic planning and mapping everything out. And, you know, you <laughs> want to have um, everything clear in yeah. principles and, you know, everything there. So if you take that as, as, as one side of the, of the spectrum and then on the other hand, you know, mm. Kenya, India type settings where, you know, people are extremely entrepreneurial in the moment and kind of, you know, um, mm. make the best out of what's, what's coming their way. And so, um, you know, being between those different contexts and maybe the U.S. kind of, you know, veering towards that entrepreneurial end as well. So we just did a, um, a large scale study with, with successful CEOs around the world. And we try to understand what is it that they do differently than um, people who are less successful than they are in how they go about planning mm-hmm. their life, their company, and so on. And one thing they, they all have in common across different uh, cultures is that they have some kind of sense of direction, some kind of sense where they're going. Then they have an approximate strategy, but then also they say, you know what, it is part of our plan that the unexpected will happen. And that is actually not something that then is, you know, a bad thing, but that's actually part of our adaptive strategy. And so, you know, if you think about it that way, then in a way on that continuum, we're saying, hey, let's take pieces of all these different cultures. And maybe then the, the quote unquote ideal approach across a lot of cultures is to say, a bit of planning is great because it gives us a certain idea of what we want to connect dots to. It gives us an idea of where approximately we're going. But at the same time, the openness to the unexpected then allows us to connect dots. And, you know, if you think about someone like Paul Pullman, for example, who mm-hmm. uh, ran Unilever, like he was a cultivator of serendipity. But, you know, to some people, he would like seem up like from time to time a bit distracted because he would take on a lot of different projects. But he was actually extremely focused because he would say, you know what? I have my bigger North Star, which is I want to navigate this company as a platform that, you know, empowers people who wouldn't uh, have an empowerment tool themselves. So I want to channel like this company towards towards that goal of, of lifting people out of poverty and so on. So if I run into him at a conference and I pitch him an idea and it relates to that broader sense of purpose, then serendipity might happen. If it doesn't, then it's very unlikely. In a way, he was very focused. And so that's the interesting thing that a lot of these CEOs have in common, that they are extremely focused on like a broader sense of direction, but then also relatively open to saying, you know what? Yeah, like this is actually interesting that this and this pops up. And so what that does in reality is, um, I'm a big fan. I mean, talk about different cultures. So a lot of my work has been in China. There's a company in China called Hire. So so they produce, you know, washing machines, refrigerators and so on. Um, they had farmers call up um, who, you know, said, well, your, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. So they asked them, well, why is, why is it breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes and it just doesn't seem to work. And so what would we usually do? We would probably say, well, that doesn't fit into our strategy. It doesn't fit in that, like, you know, people would just wash their potatoes. So we would tell them to not wash them. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. But there's a lot of farmers in China who might have a similar problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing? And that's how the potato washing machine coincidentally. The point here is that, again, they had an approximate idea of what they want to do. But then they were open to the unexpected and that was actually investable within the company. There's a lot of structures they have in terms of how investments can happen into that. But long story short, even though there are cultural differences, I think there are certain mechanisms that across cultures seem to work, which is having a sense of direction, but at the same time an openness. To- yeah, I like that. I um, I I hadn't heard, I, I know higher, but I hadn't heard the the potato washing machine example. That's a great a great example. Part of it is just about kind of yeah, just being attuned to those connections, like you say. So I know. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the birthday paradox, the fact that, you know, within a room of 23 people, two people 
are likely to share a birthday. You know, counterintuitive to to almost everybody, but you know, the maths bears it out. And increasingly, I think we can see some of those connections as well. You know, social media or, or whatever it might be allows us to see. You know, if we share a birthday or we share interests with people that we only you know vaguely know, and so it's a it's a social lubricant, if nothing else, in some ways. But it can also be really overwhelming. So knowing where to focus. So you know, should we pivot from our washing machine strategy and develop a potato washing machine, or should we stick with our original strategy because that was a you know a more lucrative market? Talk to me a little bit about kind of focus because it sounds, and I am very drawn to random chance connections but it can also be exhausting or distracting to kind of follow all of those as well and not some are more fruitful than others so what are your reflections or learnings about yeah just how to do that smartly so it's smart luck rather than kind of dumb luck i suppose it's exactly that that question right opportunity versus distraction like when is it something that is actually leading you into a direction that you know is potentially quote-unquote better whatever that means um, versus the the one that kind of distracts you your kind of jack of all trades type uh, happening yep. and so i've been a big fan of filters um so having filters um such as what we just talked about like setting down and defining what is my kind of sense of direction at this point it might change but for now this is where approximately i'm going so everything now when i have conversations or so i try to link that back to that kind of north star um just mm. to kind of have something that is, is in a way guided even though it might be very serendipitous that someone says you know what we could build the content into uh, an elementary school curriculum that's unexpected, but it still kind of fits into the idea, the broader purpose of, you know, taking that content, certainly content into curricula in general. Um, and, and so the point being that having that kind of like filter of a certain North Star um, mm. being helpful in companies, um, Pixar and others have, have used things such as brain trusts, right, where they say what is kind of like an informal mechanism or semi-formal mechanism where you have a couple of people that whenever an idea pops up, I briefly look at it and say, okay, great. Or, well, maybe that's on a parking lot. Maybe that's that's to be done later. And I found something like this also in my personal life super helpful to just have a couple of people to bounce things off. Um, mm. But then also more importantly, to have a parking lot system. So um, mm. I've used that a lot in startups, actually. You know, when you have founding teams and you have all these ideas and everything and, and there's so much serendipity, um, but you actually really need to focus to build and scale something to really say, hey, great, let's have a simple Google Doc where... Every great idea we just put in there, we mark it in terms of priority, and then we'll get back to that. But for now, we focus on that. And so I feel like that parking lot system, it de-stresses a little bit because you don't feel you lost an opportunity. It just kind of says, look, maybe it's not for, for that particular time. And last but not least, I found it super interesting what Paul Graham did with his maker versus manager schedule, because essentially what you're trying to do here is to say, of course, there's a lot of urgent stuff out there, but you need to protect your maker time. You need to protect the time where you're conceptual, where you, where you think about strategy or the, the things that usually you don't take the time for. Um, and so in my case, for example, in the early mornings, like it's protected time. It's a meeting with myself, nobody else. Like that's literally my time. Um, and that has helped a lot because it allows, especially in those, mom those moments, to connect dots a bit more purposefully um, versus always kind of being in, in the day-to-day. -day. I like that. I can definitely, uh, definitely relate to that as well. Uh, one of the things that just occurred to me hearing you speak was uh, the choices we make about uh, what we optimize for. So most organizations prioritize efficiency in some shape or form, even when it comes to innovation and creativity, they want to do that efficiently. And, you know, but I think sometimes that's at the expense of serendipity. So if you optimize for optionality, so take the choice that leaves the most potential routes forward open. Yeah, it's a great one. And, and I feel it, it goes into I guess a broader 
theme of illusional control as well that I feel optimizing <laughs> only for efficiency assumes that you can control everything that you know exactly what is best mm. and, and then kind of make that the most efficient it, it can be. And what I've found really interesting and, and that's what I guess a lot of research shows also is that, you know, in, in, mm. in very clearly defined areas where you have fixed kind of, you know, solution problem combinations, like there it can be great, right? To maximize, like if you if you have already developed a, a COVID vaccine, right? And like now it's all about getting into market by any means that needs efficiency, right? Like it's a predetermined, like you don't need any more serendipity there, but you need it at the beginning. It serendipitously emerged, right? As a kind of, as a core idea. And so it depends a bit on the life cycle stage, right? Of a person mm -hmm. or of an idea or of a project. Um, if you need a bit more of a kind of emergence versus a bit more of the kind of actually now putting the head mm -hmm. down and, and putting it out there, But also more importantly, like that question then of, do we assume that we know exactly which problem we're solving? And, and what do I mean with this? So if you look at how companies have traditionally been set up, take a company like Philips, right? Doing amazing tomography devices. They now, let's assume they have a department that's called the tomography department. And now when you're in the tomography department, you will only think about how to improve tomography because that is the one solution that you predefine. So you will never come up with any other than that. Now, if you have a department that's called the precision diagnosis department, then tomography becomes one potential solution, but actually there could be so many other precision diagnosis ways um, and tools that could emerge from that. And so the point here is that efficiency a lot of times is, is to narrow down potential solution avenues and to focus on that particular avenue. But again, usually that is kind of the advisable thing once we have a very clear idea of what exactly makes sense at a certain point. If you have a general challenge such as let's, you know, we need to be more profitable. If you just, let's say, oh, let's cut costs in XYZ, then you don't let people come up with additional revenue streams, right? So the point here is like, by the way, we frame a problem. Um, we already predetermine a lot of times how it can be solved. And a lot of times then the efficiency discussion comes in when you think you know exactly what kind of solution you want to approach, even though it might be too quick to actually already know which that, that might be. Mm. Uh, what's that? There's a famous proverb. I think it's in the Bible, actually. Uh, but, but, you know, to a person with a hammer, every problem is a, is a nail, right? So uh, I'm uh, yeah, curious how you get there. Obviously, there's the kind of things like the five wise technique or stuff like that, where you try and go to a higher level domain from which perhaps the, the problem arose to understand, you know, a deeper lying question. Are there any other kind of techniques or methods that you've seen that work particularly well? Or, you know, how, how do you, how do you do that? Because I think a lot of people, myself included, do this quite sort of innately and don't even realize we're doing it maybe specifying a solution or implying a solution in asking a questions well i mean i'm definitely a big fan of the of the five whys that you and others kind of used to essentially drill down to what's the real underlying problem i think any good doctor and others would use that right to, to really kind of get to the to the root cause of something um, i'm also yeah. a big fan of the socratic approach in terms of saying let's mm -hmm. consistently and continuously question our assumptions let's always ask you know, what is actually behind that, what you're saying. Mm. Like when you tell me cut costs, like what assumption is that based on? Is that based on the assumption that we keep the same product, but we're just trying to get cheaper because maybe our assumption could also be we should actually be more expensive and have a much better product that is higher quality. And so the point mm. is like, what is your assumption? The beautiful thing, especially in entrepreneurship, is that you consistently iterate around your assumptions, right? You consistently mm. iterate around what could be actually the, the thing here that we're talking about. And that's why I'm a big fan of, of having more philosophy, especially in business schools, because in a way, it's really about that questioning mindset. And the study I mentioned earlier, where we worked with key executives, 
a lot of this is around that a lot of them are practical philosophers. They're constantly asking why. They're constantly mm. questioning everything. And by doing this also, they give others the permission to question. And I think that's mm. coming back to what we talked about earlier, that like it's one thing to have a strategy that's great as a kind of first step, but every entrepreneur knows that when you write an initial business plan, that business plan is just a, like an approximate idea of what you could do, but it will change and that's fine. And that's part of the process. So defining that as part of the process, I think, is a huge um, step forward. I love that. More philosophers needed um, in business and in life, that's for sure. I used to have um, somebody I worked with years ago would finish almost every, we would, we would get together about once a month and work intensively for a few days together. They, they, they were in Denmark. And so I would fly over for two days every month and we'd work together. And at the end of every session, there was a small group of us, kind of five or six people working together. He, he would ask the question, are we working well as a team? And at first, when he asked that question, I took it as an implied criticism that somehow we weren't working well. And it made me a bit nervous, but it opened up a conversation about, you know, what was working and what wasn't working. I think he must have learned it or read it in a book or something, but he asked it every single time in slightly different ways. But it was actually really, really powerful because it just gave us a chance to pause, reflect, ask ourselves if we were working well together, maybe what wasn't working, and then, you know, address some of those things next time together. I thought it was really, really good. Uh, it's partly in my mind because he got in touch with me out of the blue yesterday for the first time in a few years. So it was kind of serendipity as well. I'd love to ask you this question and feel free not to answer if you don't want to, but I saw in a video um, you shared sort of in passing, but I was fascinated by it, that you had been in quite a bad car accident when you were young and that was quite a pivotal moment for you. I don't know. Can you just tell that story if you're comfortable in doing so and what, uh, how that changed your mindset, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely was a quite pivotal moment in terms of, uh, you know, I used to be that kid in high school who was kicked out of school, who had to repeat a year, you know, still a lot of respect for my parents for enduring me during that period. You know, I transferred this into my driving style and that's where then, you know, one day I smashed into four parked cars and I won't forget, you know, when you have that moment before you face, like, or that moment where you feel you're facing death. Like I remember when I was spinning around in the car, I felt completely mm. helpless, right? Completely powerless because I'm like, okay, well, that was it. And like, then you have this whole weird thing, right? Where you see kind of parts of your life, like just like mm. your inner eyes. It's a very weird moment that, that happens. And so the days after that, I asked myself all these weird questions, right? Like, okay, if I would have died, who would have cared? Was it all worth it? Did I do anything meaningful? And I only had depressing answers at that point. There wasn't that much that, that felt meaningful at, at that point. And mm. so it put me on this intense search for meaning. That's when I started reading the, the Viktor Frankl the first time around um, essentially how do you find meaning in situations that feel relatively tough. Um, it's been my book side, my bedside table book since ever since then, because mm. every crisis I, I tend to reread it. The reason that kind of accident um, left a mark was that I still, when I cross the street nowadays, I'm, from time I'm thinking, right, okay, like you could run in front of the car any time. You could get cancer anytime. So it instilled this sense of urgency, this idea that, look, it's one thing to think you can spend 10 years on XYZ and then later on do what feels really like meaningful, but actually you might not have that time. You might not have life that could, could unfold. And, and, and I think that's why I've become so fascinated by, by that serendipity mindset to say, you know what, like 
we are just not able anymore to plan out what the next 15 years will bring. We can, we can set a couple of pillars that are important to us, right? Around family, around our key principles, around key values, things like this. But then a lot of other things will emerge. And, and how, how do we imbue meaning in this? How do we not see that as something that kind of throws us off guard and says, oh my God, like now life is, is only anxiety enhancing to actually saying, wow, maybe there is some kind of beauty in that. And so, you know, to me, that has helped a lot coming from Germany where, you know, as we talked about earlier, you get instilled with this idea that if something is not according to plan, it's wrong, it's imperfect. Something is not, you know, you didn't do it well enough. Um, mm. Getting away from this has helped me also a lot to then say, wow, maybe there can be in every interaction, every day, there can still be something joyful, even during periods like at the moment, which feel extremely dire, right? Thank you for sharing that. There's something yeah, just really amazing in that story, which for me is about where we put our attention and maybe before the accident you weren't paying enough attention but then in that moment you're seeing and i've never had this experience myself so i'm fascinated by it but seeing your life you know flash before your eyes or or something like that you're you're absolutely in suspended animation in some way and and going back to the the lucky man who finds the five pound note in front of the coffee shop he's kind of paying attention to to what is there around him there in that moment in a way that the other person is maybe distracted or staring at their phone. And, and there's something about that present and that attention, which is, which is rare and there's value in, in nurturing. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's really, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting also because I had a couple of conversations with people, you know, who, who are close to death. So people who face things like cancer mm. and other things where they know that they will die soon. And it's, it's just something where, you know, a lot of the conversations tended to go back to the Viktor Frankl idea that mm. you cannot always pick the situation you're in, but you can always pick your response to it. And so you would have people fighting cancer who would say, you know what, I'm turning this into a campaign now that I somehow use this cancer now to the one year I have left, I will now do something that then feels extremely meaningful as I still have done something. Um, you know, I, I, I'm still trying to take whatever agency I have in this left and do something. Mm. I feel, especially at the moment, right, where a lot of us, I feel, feel very powerless, right? It's almost like COVID has been like a collective near-death experience, right? Where like a lot of times, like it was literally the rug kind of pulled, being pulled under a lot of our feet. And, and, and you know, in, in a way then thinking about, okay, that feeling of powerlessness that we've all had, mm. right? Being, you know, literally not allowed to go outside whenever we wanted to, or, you know, things that, that felt extremely unthinkable just a few years ago would all mm. happen at the same time. What kind of that gave was really that idea that, yes, like at the end of the day, facing something like this is extremely anxiety enhancing. And in general, like when you're, when you're facing something like now, we can, we can also try to respond to that in different ways, right? And, and one way that I've seen quite a few people here respond is to say, okay, how do I now really understand what is really meaningful to me? Who are the few people who are truly meaningful to me? How do I want to reorient my life so that in a way, when the world opens up again, I live a life that is truer to who I really want to be? And so, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like it brought up a couple of the bigger questions that in the usual kind of day-to-day -day running around type, uh, how do you call mm -hmm. it, hamster wheel type life we might not reflect on, but when you face those kind of things, you start reflecting on those. And so I feel it's really the Viktor Frankl kind of idea. And I highly recommend that book, by the way, um, as mm. a kind of how do you find meaning in that kind of moment, even if there might not be a big one. No, that's really beautiful. I'm um, 
Somebody asked me yesterday, and what is your concept of time at the moment, thinking about COVID and lockdown? And so people were answering that question in different ways. And you know, a lot of people were saying, well, we're sort of in some groundhog day. Every day is the same. It's kind of we're frozen somehow in some repetitive reality. But we did talk in some ways about collective grief or, or death. In fact, that came up as well. And just but hearing you share that made me think of birth, actually. I've got three children. It's my daughter's 10th birthday today i have three children she's my youngest and so and there's something about the birth of all three of my children where time has completely changed in the run up to the birth and the immediate birth of the child and then the 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 minutes and the hours and the days that follow and and it, you know it gets back to normal but there's something really really weird but really magical in the way that time changes around maybe birth and death other transitions in life as well so um i don't have a question but i just i'm sharing a reflection uh, do you feel so so did it accelerate or did it decrease in terms of the the pace that you felt in those moments or how did oh you... uh, completely um well i was going to say decelerate but it was just you couldn't do anything else you were just focused on that moment it was maybe like you spinning in the car when you were as you shared earlier you were just there and so it felt like sort of time stood still and was really kind of slow. And especially the first few days, you know, you're checking out this new creature, this new person and all of their tiny movements and needs. And it's just so absorbing, you know, so and, you know, it, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It almost makes me want to have another child, but not quite. Three's enough. <laughs> um and yeah, there's something about the relationship with time as well. Any final reflections or thoughts or comments or anything else on your mind that you want to share before we, we wrap? Yeah, I mean, maybe coming full circle, we, we just talked about that in a way, if in the, any given moment, our reaction to a situation in a way defines the situation, then there's a lot of agency, right? And a lot of we can mm. do about whatever given situation. We talked about the example in the coffee shop, we talked about other examples, right, where we, in a way, reframe um, reality to a degree that we say, okay, at least it is bearable, but it might even be joyful, or it might even be something that that is meaningful to us. Um, mm. And to me, that comes really back to the broader philosophical notion behind serendipity, which is that serendipity is all about potentiality, what could be in a moment, what could be in a person, what could be in an organization, and then starting to see that, but also like helping others to start seeing it so that they can then you know, in Goethe's work, become who they're capable of becoming. And so I feel there's a beautiful component there in terms of how people can become their possible, not necessarily best selves, but like possible selves by mm. actually giving themselves to serendipity and saying, well, maybe, you know, I've always assumed I'm X, but maybe, maybe I'm actually a bit more Y. And 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 that is that is fine. That is that is that is nothing to better or, or less better than, than what was before. And so I think it's it's really kind of philosophically speaking, a lot of what we talked about, I think, comes back to that one point that how do we essentially, you know, see the potentiality in all of this, um, even though it might feel dire and that, you know, sometimes we don't feel there's agency in, in that mm. situation. But I feel at the moment, all roads lead back to Victor Frankl. Thank you, Christian. I really, really enjoyed that conversation and got a lot from it. So serendipity is smart luck and about harnessing the potentiality about what you could be in any moment. I think the stuff towards the end about staring death in the face was particularly powerful and interesting. And I was also amused in the beginning 
about thinking what would the world be like if everybody was like Uber connector Ollie Barrett. So if you want to find out a bit more about Christian, check out the links in the episode description. If you want to find out a bit more about the Liminal community, which supports and produces this podcast, have a look at www.weareliminal.co. As ever, it would be great if you could like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who may enjoy it as well. And until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Mm.